Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is an ABC podcast. Hello, today's episode of The Outer Sanctum will be with you shortly, but just a word of caution. There is a few swear words in the fifth quarter, which is in the last segment of today's podcast. So make sure little ears are kept well away. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Hello and welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. For any new listeners, we are 10 football-loving lady friends who gather weekly here in the Outer to discuss the social, the stupid and the sublime around AFL football. My name is Emma Race and it gives me great pleasure to be back in the mascot suit this week. I'm not running out on the metaphorical ground alone. As always, I'm joined by my football-loving lady sisters of the Sanctum. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Uh, hi, I'm Lucy Race, which is a coincidence. Nice to meet you. Hi. I'm still Nicole Hayes. Oh, hi. I'm Deidre Chambers. Uh, No, I'm Kate Sear. Deidre Chambers. (laughs) What a coincidence. How are you, my lady loves? Are you well? So well. My head is spinning after a round of actual football. Was there football Mm. on this weekend? Oh, Nicole. Well, there was actual football. Round two kicked off on Thursday night, bin night last week, and we were all rewarded with a draw. But before we get into it, I thought it was pretty nice. At the end of last week, I said, can you please review us on iTunes? And we got some nice new reviews. And I thought I would make you guys read them because it's highly (laughs) embarrassing to read compliments about yourselves. Lucy? Okay, I won't read the shopping list that my husband just texted me. I will read this. It's... Didn't think this show could get better, but it has since the lockdown. Please keep the new segments. Thank you. So nice. the fifth quarter the stays. The fifth quarter stays. Nicole, what have you got? Love these girls. Just listened. Fantastic show filled with intelligent, funny and diverse women. Love it. You sure they were listening to us? <laughs> entirely sure. You got one, Katie? I have. Someone's, uh, someone who I think could be Tess Armstrong, has. Uh, <laughs> our producer, has sent one in that says, I love listening to you and think this is such a great podcast. The mix of footy passion with intelligent discussion of social issues is so unique. Thank you and go Tigers. Oh, that's no, everyone's smacks of Teddy Armstrong, doesn't it? Mm. Could have been Rana Hussein. That's probably. true. Could That's have been true. Peggy O'Neill. I was say. Oh, it's probably Peggy. It probably yeah, was Peggy. Thanks, Peggy. So the round kicked off with a draw, with a long way to draw, and then there was <laughs> some <laughs> a long way to draw that we'd all been waiting for. The virtual then, crowd went wild. <laughs> well, the virtual crowd was pretty interesting. I thought the big winner of the weekend, especially after the first game, was the <laughs> AFLW tweeters, many of whom made the point that with shorter quarters and less preparation time, it was unsurprising to see a completed scoreline of five goals, six apiece. And I really enjoyed it. There wasn't one, there wasn't two. We had many. Did you enjoy that? Yeah, it was It was great. It was a pretty...
pretty uh, uninspiring affair, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. It was. Uh, yeah, it was pretty dull, but um, sort of felt like fitting in a way to, given the year that we're having, for it just to grind to a pretty uh, pointless. <laughs> Um, uninspired draw. And there was no supporters in the outer, but there was well, there was one red-faced president. I did spot him. But there was crowd noise, but it wasn't set to draw. Did you notice that? <laughs> I did, I did. And, look, I do wish that they had one that said ball oh, because yeah. I did. I really miss that. But I think the whole virtual crowd engagement has been really interesting and there's been some very funny things that have happened out of it. I don't know if you guys saw, but I don't think it happened at all games, but there was virtual banners mm. at Dockland Stadium. <laughs> it really messed with my head because they looked so real, but there was no one holding the ropes. You know, if we just put the cheer squad out of a job. Do you think the cheer squad are nervous? I think so. If you're in the I cheer think... squad, let us know if you are feeling nervous about your job. <laughs> but it raised other questions for me and I wondered if you can put a virtual banner on the field why be limited what else could we have done it did feel like a missed opportunity didn't it i mean you could have actually shown the players running through and the banner could like explode like the <laughs> demons could explode into the fires of hell or you could have like wild animals like you could have your actual they could be oh my gosh, like you could have all your members run out with you, <laughs> oh, you could do anything. Oh, could you imagine if you're the giants you could run out with giants <gasps> giants oh. yes or Beanstalks. That's a full Game of Thrones look now that I've just imagined in my mind. Yeah, I would Fantastic. You could run out with Jon Snow. <laughs> <laughs> what if they had virtual wild animals? Right? Just chasing them I'd down. I'd be happy with that. <laughs> I'd be happy with that. Instead of well, you, pigeons. I'm the Serengeti. <laughs> yeah. I'd be that. happy with that. What did you think of the fake crowd noise? I liked it. I liked it too. I liked it a lot. I'll it added you, something, didn't I, it? Yeah, I think it did. Are the players hearing no. it? They're not hearing it. No. Okay. I, I, I agree with you. I think it was far better than round one, which was just absolutely flat Weird. without any noise. I think they need to work a bit. I think the DJ needs to work a little bit better to perfect it. As you say, Lucy, to have a crowd yelling ball when there's a holding a ball decision or you're hot, that kind of stuff. I think it could be more nuanced essentially, but it was it was much better than having nothing. When but you how, speak of the crowd noise, sorry, I just remembered this one time when I was at Whitten Oval sitting next to Felicity Race, a uh, friend of the pod. and <laughs> With Aristotle. With Aristotle, also friend of the pod. We were sitting there and you know someone plays the music at the Whitten Oval during the AFLW games and I was like, that music is too loud. Who do you think is playing it? And she said, I think Sue Alberti's on the decks. So <laughs> in my mind, I always think when that music's played that yeah. it's Sue, DJ Sue, yeah. Sue just rocking it. And so DJ Alberti had some big, yeah. she had some big responsibilities this weekend. Speaking of uh, virtual fans and crowd noise, do you ladies want to tell us a little bit about what you were doing? Because I I think I saw you on the telly. On the Brady Bunch. On the Brady Bunch. Do you want to tell us you're in the virtual crowd yeah, zone? Yeah, so we, we were lucky enough to be in the virtual crowd zone for... Fan zone. Fan zone. Boy zone. Boy zone. <laughs> Adventures. Ozone. For the Hawthorne... Geelong game and was it a game uh, which we I don't know speak of <laughs> it was again. a half a game it was actually super fun so we weren't entirely sure how much fun it would be or whether it would be distracting but it was awesome because we got to sit and watch the game with eight other groups of fans and so it actually felt like we were sitting with a whole lot of like-minded footy friends and we're all screaming at the screen at the same time what was funny is the computer was sitting in front of us in front of the tv and every time something great would happen we'd all clap and it looked like I don't know if you've read Horton Hears a Who but when the little tiny Who's of Whoville are clapping it was like that we had little tiny Ponty Pines almost <laughs> if you were fans of In the Night Garden it was lovely and we 
also met some people because there were some Hawks fans from Tassie. There was some from Darwin. In the breaks, we were having a chat. We were all swearing about the game and how mm. terrible it was. And then we did a wave when we were getting bored, <laughs> when we were kicking any goals. A couple of times, um, Hawthorne kicked a goal and they showed the Geelong fans and we were all feeling so incensed that we hadn't been picked. So I think we upped our game a little bit. But it was interesting because I think, Dr Kate Sear, you had trash-talked us earlier I in had, the day when I we had. said we were doing it. And you said it was complete Dorksville. We actually had a really nice time. Well, I have a complaint. Oh, I do. Our chat went to zero because you three were so busy with other fans. You completely betrayed us. It was not fun. Small violin. Sorry, Nicole. One thing I thought was absolutely sublime was the St Kilda Drive Inn. I thought it was fantastic. And the images on the St Kilda website were fantastic of fans turning up to watch the game in their cars. It looked like a tailgate party that you see in the States. It did. And even better, I think, than the actual event was when it was tweeted out, it had the caption, when the Saints go driving in. (laughs) And that has, I just think that is gold. It was so good. It looked so retro. It looked so fun. And then St Kilda actually won to make it even more fun. That would have been really a little bit deflating if they hadn't. Did that shock you that St Kilda won over the dogs by 39? Um, Yeah, the way that they played and, and the margin shocked me. One of the lovely surprises talking actual football I thought was the Gold Coast Suns. (laughs) I have such a soft spot for those number one and number two draft picks, Noah Anderson and Matt Rowell. And Matt Rowell's game was so impressive. He was rising star. There's talk that he will have easily got three Brownlow votes. Two goals, 26 possessions, 14 of them contested. He's just the loveliest guy. And I I know, right? I don't even know what that means. There's football. Okay, well, I'll just offset that with one of my other highlights of the round, and that was Dangerfield played his milestone match. Because of social distancing, he could not be chaired off. This is a good... Results because yes, mm. you're not a fan. I'm of not a fan of the no. One of my other highlights of the round was ISO hair. Just seeing who'd come Let's out of chair ISO. More hair. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> who'd come out of ISO with uh, you know let their hair go, or, or who'd clearly cut their own hair, and I <laughs> I loved it. I mean Ben Stratton seems to have. Mm. Oh, I think he's permed his own hair during mm. the, which Nicole Hazel enjoys. Um, <laughs> someone who used to have a perm, but. That uh, photo is not going on socials, just saying. <laughs> it was a good round of footy and heaps of upset. Many, yeah, heaps of upset. So the Blues and the Ds almost drew. Mm. Ds crushing it with a one-point win. <laughs> um, bombers know how to win in Sydney. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you North think there's much Melbourne. we can actually North, take? Yeah, North. North over the Giants And, and well. Paul just destroyed the Crows. But do you think there's a lot we can take out of this? I just feel like nobody was playing their actual game. No, Fumbly McGee. Everyone yeah. was so Fumbly McGee. People weren't quick spinning. No. There was no There was no trickery. I didn't no. think there was much. There was many. They were a bit rusty. They were rusty, it always which takes I like, quite enjoyed. Yeah, and it mm. takes like six or seven games usually to see them really settle in and, and like that'll take us like halfway through the season from here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it'll be really interesting to see who's still standing at the end. Are you guys ready to roll up your sleeves and melee ladies? Okay, what we found out overnight is that the VFLW will not go ahead as we have ever seen it before. There's been a press release out talking about a super series which I am still not entirely sure exactly what we're going to see. My feeling is that it's an amalgamation of a bunch of players that we maybe don't even know yet who will be playing in a round robin. Yes, so I think there will be 120 players will be put into four different teams. They will play three matches and there will be one all-star match. The 
main purpose of it really is just to give some of the players who are hoping to be picked up in the AFLW an opportunity to play and, and be seen. Peter Holden tweeted out an interesting stat. He said, for VFLW fans, let this fact sink in for a moment. He said, the men's competition has had a 72% reduction in matches, whereas the women's competition has been reduced by 92%. Men's list opportunities have been decreased by 46%, while the women's decreased by 75%. For a lot of players who are on the older age spectrum, they may have just been retired without having any opportunity to make their own decision. We won't see the players that we love so much necessarily. Mm. I think the AFLW players may not even play all year. And I find this to be a really short-sighted, feels a little bit hashed together, pushed together, last resort kind of decision. Mm. Where I think it's tricky is that the reasoning they've given for it is that 10 of the 12 VFLW clubs are affiliated with an AFL club. So they're unable to access the facilities because there's restrictions on you know who can come and go into an AFL club at the moment so that's what's kind of forcing it so hang on to be cynical for a moment you saying that the men can get access but the women can't that the men have been prioritized over the women is that what you're saying yes what I think is also interesting is that with other state-based competitions they're going to be playing so the state competition in Queensland is going to have much more of a more like our VFL M um, competition where they're going to start up reasonably soon and play actual matches in their teams this will I think just decimate actual Mm. club VFLW club and team landscape for this year at least. So for Seagulls and for the Falcons, they don't get to play. This is not anything to do with the benefits that they have ever reaped. They are standalone yeah. clubs in the VFLW. Yeah. They will not be playing, yeah. that they will have a year where they don't play. They've pretty much written off 2020 for women's football. That's what it feels like. This is what they've squished in is just a little bit of token kind of acknowledgement that there are women who might need to, you know, get an op- opportunity. It's nothing like the the same opportunities being afforded men. In the same way that on that Q&A show on Monday night and the conversation about football, admittedly, Brendan Gale cannot represent all of the AFL, but any reference to the VFLW was dismissed immediately and the AFLW was all about 2021. And I completely understand that it's difficult but they're not even talking about it they're not acknowledging that this was not something that they could be handled better and what would we do next time or closing of that conversation we've seen we've known that there's issues for such a long time when you have clubs that are affiliated with an afl club it's actually to the detriment of the competition now that you have an affiliation with an afl club it's Mm. not a benefit and it's because the resources are all being put into the afl stream into the afl m stream i should say i think that's just going to be really hard news for people for fans Mm. of women's football in victoria to handle and if anyone wants to jump in a car and go over the border and watch some Queensland footy, I'm bang up for that. Yeah, Road trip. Road trip. On the weekend we saw the clubs responding to the Black Lives Matter movement and we saw teams warming up in black T-shirts and taking a knee before each game of the round. It was a powerful and timely message that there is no room for racism in sport or in life. Cue horrific derogatory racist tweet aimed at Eddie Betts. Mm. Poor Eddie Betts seems to cop it all the time and obviously it was fantastic to see all of the players take this on and this was player-led. I was incredibly proud of the code for this moment. As it turns out, we're now Frio members. 
because there was a couple of members of clubs who said, if you take a knee, I will be withdrawing my membership, to which us among a whole bunch of other people online said, I'll pay for those memberships. And I think that I thought clubs were really good at responding. What I thought was interesting was that you can see people having an opinion, which is a political opinion, but at the same time saying keep politics out of sport. Sport is always political, Kate, correct? It's something we've talked about a lot on this show over many years is that um, sport is intrinsically political and unfortunately it has been a common refrain this week. People tend to take this view that if there is sort of a very explicit political statement like a taking the knee, like a Colin Kaepernick situation, that this is somehow a new or fresh development. It's not. And I I just want to run through, if I can, quickly my sort of greatest hits, my top four reasons why (laughs) sport is intrinsically always political, if you'll indulge me. Okay, David Letterman. (laughs) (laughs) Worst top five ever. (laughs) Well, the first reason is that sport's comprised of humans. Uh, No human being's life can be separated out from politics. We live in gendered, racialised, sexualised bodies, which are always the subject of political assessments. The other thing to say is that what Uh, our bodies can do is enabled and constrained by political considerations by which bodies are valued and and how. So a refugee who lives on Manus Island can't enter into the AFL draft, no matter his or her talent or or interest in the game. A child who aspires to play uh, soccer but is growing up in the midst of the Syrian civil war doesn't have the same opportunities as others. And there, there'll be many other ways in which the lives of humans are constrained or other obstacles are put in front of people. Oh, just as a quick side note, I don't know if you've been following the story of Marcus Rashford in, in the UK. He's a soccer player who plays for Manchester and has been pushing Boris Johnson's government to extend free meals to, to children during the pandemic time. And, and overnight, actually, Boris Johnson announced that they would get on board with that initiative, which is absolutely extraordinary. But he has talked about the fact that he grew up as a poor kid and he would never have had the opportunity to play sport if he didn't have other families chip in and help out and feed him. Uh, so it's exactly that kind of thing. Wherever humans are involved, there's always complex questions to be asked about human rights as well, including what to do with fundamental rights like free speech when an individual athlete becomes part of a team or represents a club or a country. Also too, I, I've said this before and it's just such, I think it's such an important point and I, I, I want to say it again on the program and that is that when you ask someone to remain silent, to withhold their political views or to not take a knee, it Etc. That is itself a political statement because silence is always already political. So that's my first reason. My second reason why sport's inherently political is that sport is structured in ways that are political. So, for example, sport is segregated by sex and that is itself a political decision. And we know that some bodies, some uh, some individuals are told that they simply don't belong in those sex-segregated competitions and that they need to adapt to normative ideals if they want to play sport, compete in sport like cast a cement for example. The third reason is that elite sport is run by organisations who are made up of people of varying political persuasions and interests. Elite sporting competitions are funded or sponsored by corporations who's, who are often involved in heavily politicised or controversial activities. Uh, they might be the subject of political scrutiny and assessment if they are using child labour, for example, uh, or there are issues with their supply chain or they're exploiting the environment. And the fourth reason I'll, I'll mention is that sport Sporting competitions often purport to be apolitical and the Olympics is a perfect example of this, but they're deeply political and long have been. So when Pierre Baron de Coubertin founded the modern Olympics, he designed an Olympic flag with five rings made up of six colours. And what he said was, this represents the five continents of the world. 
united by Olympism, while the six colours are those that appear on all of the national flags of the world at the present time. The stated aim of the Olympics was to, or is to, contribute to building a peaceful and better world. So the Olympic Games are supposed to be unifying and in this sense have an explicitly humanist and diplomatic mission. And that emphasis on unity is itself political. So that's just some of the reasons why we can't ever separate politics and sport and to suggest otherwise, as people have done over the weekend, is just wrong. Thanks for that, Kate. That was the best, greatest hits and I can't <laughs> wait for the album. Did you both think that it was a very swift response to something that was happening in the world and very different to what we saw during Adam Goods, for example? Like The AFL has learnt a very fast response lesson here. They did. And it was great to see the player-led kind of movement. And it was a lot of people who have been silent suddenly speaking up, particularly allies. I was a little challenged by the timing of a letter from the Hawthorne President, Jeff Kennett. So in the heat of this conversation, leading into the actual Hawthorne-Geelong game, where very much a focus of pre-game conversation was about the Black Lives Matter movement in America and its connection in Australia, its relevance in Australia. So I thought it was really unfortunate that he sent out a, a newsletter to the, to the membership and it was linked in their socials, which went into quite a bit of detail about the sacrifices and the financial situation. It also acknowledged John Kennedy Sr.'s elevation to legend status in the Hall of Fame, which is all very well. But it made no mention at all about what was happening right then and had been happening really all week in that space, in that very important cultural space. And that's a very large membership you're sending a message out to. It's particularly challenging because one of the leading voices was Chad Wingard, who is a Hawthorne player himself. And I wonder how supported he would feel or felt having a president go to the trouble of kind of making a very long speech to the membership without recognising the work and the risks that Chad took in sticking his neck out in a way that, you know, hasn't been welcomed in the past. So I felt like it was a missed opportunity. I know that he he made sort of some effort in his socials to kind of counter some of that. I spent some time reading his Twitter feed and his followers and that's not a pretty place to be and that's 45 minutes of my life I'm never getting back and I'm in a bit of therapy as a result of it. But having said all of that, it was a missed opportunity. It was a very public statement. It seemed very tone deaf. The thing that I really did love was the leadership shown by players and so there are a lot of opportunities for players to speak. Patrick Dangerfield said it best when he said, you know, we have we have a platform, we should use it properly, we should use it wisely. And I think we then saw that when, as you mentioned, Em, that unfortunately Eddie Betts has just continues to cop horrific racist messages on social media. And we saw Sam Doherty come out from Carlton very articulately showing support. We're seeing at the moment there's a lot of this in society and for what criticism the AFL is getting for being political, I think what we're trying to do is just make it right. He's one of our teammates, one of our much-loved figures at our footy club, and to see him vilified like that, it, it does hurt us. And anyone that's asking a question about why we're taking an knee pre-game or why we're trying to make a difference, why we're trying to actually do something about it, this is the exact reason why. I can't understand what that does to Eddie, and I never will. And I don't think any of us will that, that don't go through that. So from a footy club perspective, we've just got to wrap our arms around him. And being silent hasn't worked for a number of years. So as, a, as an industry and as a footy club, we've got to stand behind our Indigenous players and, and make a stand. How great is that? Mm. The players that I heard speak just felt so comfortable and I really got the sense that they really understand how important their voices are. Yeah, and they're taking it on. I hear your concern, Nicole, and I will dig in and find out what the timing was of Jeff writing that letter and why he didn't mention that in that letter. I think it would be great to see 
you know, all levels of management mm-hmm. and all levels of people working within footy making that statement, but it's not going to happen. Like people have really strong opinions about it. So it was great to see the playing group do it. One thing we did receive on the weekend was we were tagged in a tweet and it was a query by AC Lambert on Twitter. She commented under a tweet by our grandstand colleague, Matt Clinch of the Saturday commentary team in the commentary box. It was a photo that Clinchy had said, you know, we're back. And she had said it really lacked diversity because it was a bunch of, it was all male and all white. And Clinchy responded pointing out that Kelly Underwood and Lauren Arnell had both been part of the ABC coverage over the weekend. And we were tagged in on that. And I f- it's it's one of those things, you know, we can respond on Twitter, but we have the podcast. So I'm choosing to respond here. And I guess my response would be that Clinchy is a woke dude and I consider him an ally and a fan of women's sport and a fan of us. But two is not 50%. 50% is equal. So absolutely, AC Lambert on Twitter, you are 100% correct. There is no diversity in that commentary box. And there is no greater moment than this moment in the last couple of weeks to really see the lack of diversity in media and and how that really impacts the way that the world is dissected and the conversations that are had. The diversity in the outer and the diversity on field is starting to be replicated in footy clubs where people work and in ads for memberships, I will say, with a bit of cynicism. And Shelley and Rana and I can attest that boardrooms are starting to open up seats to people like us because it's been legislated by the Victorian state government that boards must be more diverse, so affirmative action is working there. But where I don't see it changing is in the commentary boxes Mm -hmm. or in the coaches' boxes, to Mm -hmm. be really honest. As Rana Hussain said in her article called What's Sport's Role in Addressing Systematic Race? which was published by Siren Sport yesterday. She said Australian sport is statistically overrepresented on the field, mostly in team sports, by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders when compared to the population. So why do all commentary boxes still look so pale, male and stale? I refuse to believe now that it's an oversight. That's me talking, not Rana. I actually can't think it's an oversight. I think Mm. it's a decision. So we've seen this week that there's been a deal with the AFL's free-to-air partner, Seven. It's worth $730 million and extends the current five-year deal by two years into the end of 2024. What I wish I could report on is that I was sitting here and reporting and telling you that as part of the broadcast deal, there was an affirmation that broadcast partners must have an active pathway for supporting the development of diverse media performers and a requirement to deliver diverse commentary boxes. Just as I wish that the AFL had written into the AFLW constitution that each licence must come with an imperative of at least 50% female coaches in the coaching lineup. That would have been great. It was rammed home for me this week, I have to say, when the AFL players' statement on Black Lives Matter was read before every game by a white man Mm. because there is not a First Nations person in the commentary boxes as far as the eye can see. Tracy Holmes said it really well on Q&A this week. The players are fantastic. They're highly overrepresented because they are such wonderful athletes. And then what happens? Where do they go? Every time we hear from someone in management, every time we see a coach or assistant coach or, or the general managers or the board of directors, where are they? We see white players that progress to other areas and and into the halls of power. But what our sports bodies say is that we're still listening to the players and it's really not good enough. I think those other doors have to open to give them a much bigger voice, a much more powerful voice and a much more influential voice. 
Doors for diversity are opening in some places and we have seen when the crack of that door opens how wonderful that conversation can be and how different it can affect people's lives and how much more fulfilling the product can be. The commentary box door is not open. Why is that? I actually did a little survey and I had a look at, based off their actual public announcement at the beginning of the year, Fox Footy is a whole channel dedicated to football. So if there are going to be opportunities, I would feel like that would be a great place where there are plenty of options available in terms of programming. I counted the number of people who are either footballers or not full commentators, experts of some kind, the entire uh, regular team involved in Fox Footy. There are 46, 46 people. Of them, five are women. The only additional woman joining that team is Kath Lochnan, who replaced Nerily Meadows. There's one Indigenous person, that's Eddie Betts, of the 46 commentators, and he's a, a rotating regular guest on AFL 360, which is a program produced five times a week. If things like... The Josh Thomas saga and, you know, if a program like Insiders, uh, which has managed to get through how many years of production and only just this week have their first non-white panellist featured, how we're going to change content and programming in the football space, it's really challenging, particularly given the majority of the, the content and programming is dominated by two media groups. One of them is Eddie Maguire's Jam Media and the other is... Craig Hutchison's croc media. We need to get it to a point where we are normalising Indigenous faces on our screens, where we normalise people of colour and and non-white faces as a regular part of viewing and not a specialised area. This is going to be very unpopular that we're saying this because we're saying Mm. this in an area that gives us a platform and it is unpopular but it's why we're here and we have to say it because it's not actually getting fixed it's going in the reverse and it's not okay because 40 percent of members at my footy club are women and i'm not seeing 40 percent of women represented when i'm trying to enjoy the game and look i'm just going to dig in a bit further and say you know we're talking about opening doors but i think we have to put forward that there's a time to close doors too and last weekend the sunday footy show welcome back sam newman According to the Channel 9 press release about that show, he is the ever unpredictable Newman and he would be having his own segment where no topic would be off limits. Now, we know that Newman has a long history of being divisive and I don't need to go into the laundry list of all of the stuff that he's said and done again. But it is relevant that he has engaged in behaviour which is racist, for example, donning blackface. Late last week, he took to Twitter to say, unsurprisingly, that AFL players taking a knee were quote, preening, that they were intimidated into it, possibly, and to exclaim something that you'll like, Kate, AFL is sport. Look, none of this is surprising. And what was, I think, really encouraging was to see how many people were pushing back against his views on social media. But he continues to be handed a mic. And I think it's really worth questioning who's handing it to him. The Sunday football show is produced by Jam TV. And the chairman of Jam TV is Eddie Maguire. So as part of that Black Lives Matter show of solidarity over the weekend, Maguire twice read the player's statement, which included the words, there is no place for racism. In relation to Heredia Lumumba's comments about his time at Collingwood, Maguire has spoken really passionately about being proud of the culture at the club and the work that they're doing and the fact that he's keen to reconnect with Lumumba. But while words matter, actions, I would argue, are even more important and shifts in rhetoric need to be backed up by actions and policies. 
This applies to all spheres where you have influence. So I think it's really appropriate for us to be asking questions about who you give a platform to and what message that sends. Yeah, and I have to say there are a lot of good journalists in footy. There are people who are who are trying as well and trying to kind of explore issues of race and uh, racism and sexism and so on. And I do think things are, are changing, but I, I can't escape the feeling that last Thursday night in the press conference when uh, after the Richmond-Collingwood game, when Nathan Buckley himself spontaneously raised issues around Lumumba, Lumumba's tweets and the re-emergence of that story last week. Buckley himself raised it and he said, among other things, that he thought Collingwood had changed in the years since Lumumba had left the club or finished playing with Collingwood and it begged the question, are you admitting or are you willing to recognise or acknowledge that there was something wrong at the club all those years ago? He spoke for about a minute and a half and then just paused and looked around and not a single journalist asked him a question in a context where I think the Lumumba story is absolutely explosive. That's my view. Like, it's as big as the Adam Good story. It's as troubling. It's perhaps even more troubling in some respects because there has been a consistent failure to recognise and acknowledge and even apologise to Lumumba. He's been gaslighted. Mm -hmm. Not just have people said that he... You know, it wasn't truthful, but there have been associations made with his mental health to undermine his credibility. And Buckley went there and I felt like he was he was inviting the journalists to give him the opportunity to say something and not a single question. I couldn't believe I would have yeah. died for the opportunity to be in that in that mm-hmm. room at that time yeah. and ask that. And question. there's a reason why you're not in that room. Like I have yeah. to say, when I saw that Q&A was doing that um, show on sport, and that Gillian McLaughlin wasn't there, I was really relishing the opportunity to see him answer questions from a journalist outside of the footy media. But we Mm. didn't get to see that. Instead, Brendan Gale went, I'm happy to accept that we are on a journey and I'm happy to accept that everyone's learning in this moment and that these moments are huge. What I'm not willing to accept is that I cannot see pathways I have looked. I cannot see pathways. I know Chloe Malloy is doing an internship at Croc Media and I would love to see her call one day, but she is one person. That's right. Where are the pathways? Mm -hmm. You show me the pathways and Mm -hmm. I will shut my Mm -hmm. pie hole. Can I say, though, Em, like, I mean, this comes back a little bit to the Josh Thomas discussion that you mentioned that's been going on this week, Nicole, where Josh Thomas, a clip of him emerged from a couple of years or three or four years ago, uh, having made comments about there not being sort of sufficient talent, essentially, among people of colour, Indigenous people, First Nations people and there is a consistent discussion about pathways part of me wonders like what what do you mean by a pathway because there are people who are already talented mm, and true. the pathway oh, I mean I don't I don't you know I don't disagree that there are there is a need for pathways pathways but sometimes the pathway I think is as simple as a person who is in a position of power saying I'm going to hire you because I know that you've done the work I opening know the ta- door like, opening or, the door is a pathway or here's well, a really you're on the thought. path it's just someone shut the That's door in right. your face That's a really right. radical thought not just opening the door Stepping out of the room exactly. and allowing yeah. someone else to take I your mean, place. Is now the time that I say, but it's not just jobs for the boys, it's jobs for the boys. Like I look at Hamish McLaughlin, he is great. He's completely fine. But his is a job that could be done by someone who Absolutely. hasn't played 300 games. Well, he, he didn't play 300 games for Geelong or whatever, right? So it's not just jobs for the boys, it's jobs for the boys who were slept in the bottom bunk. Jobs for your mates, jobs for your brother. I, I don't see anyone sitting at home going, well, I'm glad he's there because he's representing me and I'm, I'm not represented anywhere else. Like, what is what is the go with that? I think the big challenge is that, you know, for a long time, as you've said, we've been on this, you know, pathways, bide your time, do all the work, you'll get there, blah, blah, blah. 
COVID has it's thrown a big hand grenade and everything's blowing up. We really do have an opportunity when we rebuild it to make sure we're not just ticking off a diversity and inclusion box and saying, well, here's one person. I would be arguing that we need to be doing so much better than that. And I can't see any evidence that that's and what's happening. I can also attest to the fact that people are dispirited and discouraged by this. And I teach a diploma in sports media. I have had in two cohorts, one female, no one of colour out of like 28, 30 possibly students. Um, they're all white men. Why would they put themselves forward? Why would you take a risk learning a, a skill and learning um, a profession that clearly doesn't want you? Yeah, and you know what? You can't be what you can't see. Like right. where, where's the proof that you're going to have a career? If you want to read a really interesting thread about journalism and why it's so white, go to Sarah Malik's uh, Twitter account. Sarah Malik is an Walkley Award-winning journalist. She is the editor of SBS um, Life and she writes for New York Times and proudly for The Guardian. And you should follow her at Sarah B. Malik, M-A-L-I-K. And she will unpack that for you in a way that someone who has the actual real world lived experience can do. And on that note, Here's an interview that Kate prepared earlier with Professor Emma Sherry. Professor Emma Sherry is an internationally regarded expert in the field of sport development and access and inclusion in sport. She's with the Swinburne University Sport Innovation Research Group. Together with Katie Rowe from Deakin University, she's just released a new book, which is called Developing Sport for Women and Girls. And it's a collection of essays from experts all over the world. She joins us today to talk about this and her research in sport. Emma, welcome to the Outer Sanctum and thanks so much for being with us. No, thank you, Kate. This is a real pleasure. So thank you for having me. The pleasure's all ours. So first of all, congratulations on the new book. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to put together this book on sport at this point in time. What were you hoping to achieve with it? So this came out of an idea, like all good ideas, over a coffee or a drink, I can't remember which one, <laughs> with um, Katie at a conference where we talked about a lot of the research around developing sport um, really focused on boys and men. And the best example I can give of that is in my space, um, a lot of the work is around soccer. So we were talking about how do we take the work that's already been done in the area but really put a, a female or, or women's lens on that and that's where the idea grew from and then we found a whole group of amazing academics um, all over the world who, who are focusing on all the different types of women and girls sport participation. Australia really interestingly is leading the way in a whole lot of places like this. Sports are given money to work with specific populations or um, different community groups and different activities to create what we call social change. So um, examples of that are things like the Pride Cup, where we saw sport being used as a tool to um, elevate um, sport opportunities and visibility of gender diverse people and, and same-sex attracted people. So that's a really um, easy way of understanding sport for development. And Australia on the global scale is doing pretty well. What we're not doing as well, I guess, is um, making it business as usual. We still are grappling with the idea of women and sport and girls sport being um, separate to sport. And I know that um, your team have been really good at talking about AFL-M and AFL-W as a really good example of that, of, of it's not just AFL and then the women's game, that there are two types of the game. So I think um, Australia does really well on the global stage, but there's still a bit of work to do about making it really equitable and, and business as usual that we have that lens on both men's and women's sport opportunities. Mm -hmm. 
I'm wondering if there's anything in the research that you and your other co-authors have done that offers us hope for supporting women and girls uh, and for maintaining or resurrecting sport for these communities in a post-COVID world. I think that's really our wicked problem moving forward. There are lots of groups that are calling out at the moment the risk that women's sport has post-COVID. Um, and the reason that we really focused those sections in that book is to understand and explain to people that there's no such thing as just women. We're all different and there's different experiences of being a woman and a girl and what that means. We are hopeful that there's been a lot of work done recently. I think for those of us who've been looking at women and girls participation in sport for a long time, it's felt two steps forward, one step back. And the last few years has felt like the scale had tipped. I must admit that this is the first time I've been nervous, but what I'm hoping is that we've seen big initiatives around a whole lot of things like This Girl Can, around the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation and Bridie O'Donnell's team. But I think we're all going to have to be really careful and thoughtful to advocate for all types of women, not just women in its broadest sense as we move towards post-COVID. There is a real risk that everyone that's not mainstream sport is going to is it going to have a bit more catching up to do in post-COVID world. One of the things I love about the format of the book is that every chapter features a case study of some kind and many of them are from other parts of the world. Each of these case studies is a story of, of a sort about a program or an initiative or a policy that holds some lessons. And I'm wondering if there was a particular initiative or development program or policy that showcased in your book that you found especially interesting and which you think has lessons for the future of sport for women and girls in Australia? One of the ones um, which I really loved is the sport for older women. Uh, maybe now that I'm moving into my mid-40s, it's becoming a bit more <laughs> close for me, so I've a bit of vested interest. We are all living longer and healthier lives and this idea that the minute that you're no longer competitive, in inverted commas, um, that you don't do it anymore, I think is really being challenged by that project. And I know um, Claire Jenkin, who was the author of that chapter, that was her entire PhD of how we can make sport accessible for people who are older and for a whole variety of reasons, not just physical health, but social and mental health. And, and because it's a really fun thing to do as, as a person, let alone just because it's going to make you feel better. So I think that case study that we really learned is, is this idea of that sport can mean many things to many people. And the older population is really, if I was um, running a sport organisation, that's our growth area. You know, we always focus on the littlies. I think there's a whole population of people who are older and healthier for much longer who really aren't being served by the current sport environment. So I really liked that one. I want to turn to some of your other research now, if I can, Emma. In particular, after the first year of the AFLW, you undertook a really important study which looked at the coverage of the AFLW in mainstream media and social media. I wonder if you can tell us some of the takeaways from, from that work, some of what you found about the way the AFLW had been covered. Yeah, it was um, a really great project that I did with um, Meryn Sherwood, who's at La Trobe University. Her background is in journalism. So she had a really interesting lens that brought to the study. So what we did in the first year of the AFLW is we scraped all the Twitter data. And I must admit, the cynic in me um, was waiting for a whole lot of, of backlash and, and angry comments. And um, I think my working title for that paper originally was One Angry Egg. Um, but what we actually found is a whole lot of the tweets and the social media was really positive and supportive. And I think it was the first time that we'd really seen, instead of piling on in a negative way, that when they got trolled or were negative comments, that the community really 
amplified the positive or shut down that negative commentary. And then what we found in the mainstream media coverage was that it was a very different type of coverage for women and girls football. Because football and AFL football we're talking about specifically here has such a strong beat, which is the journalist term for you know people being covering that particular sport in their job, that the women's game got pulled into that regular business as usual in those areas. Um, whereas other sports and female sports, it's been much harder to kind of break in because it's not someone one's regular business as usual. You've continued on with uh, your interest in studying how uh, women's sport and men's sport is covered in the media during the coronavirus pandemic and you recently co-authored a piece for The Conversation which was about the explosion of best of sports lists Mm. and top sporting moments lists that have been flooding newspapers and flooding social media. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found with that study? What we found unfortunately is a lot of the nostalgic stuff around sport is men's because we haven't been as good as a community as of the archiving and the storytelling and the sharing of the highlights of women's sport. It came from one of our colleagues um, on the floor with the Sunday papers circling all the men's and women's stuff and realising there was next to no women's. And then we partnered with um, an amazing group called Siren Sport who who do a lot of advocacy work for women in sport. And they were had been previously collecting data on the Sunday splash pages, which is with, when you see on the website, the, the, the stories that appear and counting the numbers. And what we saw pre-COVID was not great coverage, but it was around 10 to 15% most weeks. Post-COVID, it really started to plummet. Complicating that is normally in an Olympic year, we would have much more coverage of female um, and women's sport because of the Olympics and the tennis circuit obviously is impacted as well, where we often have high profile media coverage of, of women's sport. We're really looking down the barrel of, of already poor, but increasingly poor coverage of women's sport in the media. And it's a bit scary. If I were to put you on the spot, Emma, which is what I'm going to do right now mm-hmm. and ask you to, to share with us what might be at the top of your best of, is there a special memory or, or story? that comes to mind? There really is and mine's a really personal um, family one. If My little boy came to the tennis with me before he went to school so we went and watched um, Venus and Serena play in a semi-final against each other. Oh wow. Now I don't even have to say their last names because everyone knows who they are. I was saying to this little four-year-old boy make sure you watch this game this woman is the best tennis player in the world and then um, he started tennis lessons not long after that and his coach asked him you know he, he ran up to his coach and said oh I watched the best player in the world and the coach said oh was it Roger or Rafa and he said no Serena that just made my heart burst with pride that my little boy only thought the best person in the world was Serena. So I know it's a very small anecdote, but it really made my heart warm in in how women don't have to just watch women's sport. Little boys, men, everyone can enjoy women's sport. It's not just women watching women. And I think that just made me really proud. Oh, thanks so much to Emma Sherry and congratulations on the book, which is now officially launched. On the issue of girls and women in sport and one of the barriers that's presented, there's um, currently a a survey being done. Uh, It's a collaboration between VU, Victoria University, and Girls Uniform Agenda. And it's the Girls Uniform Agenda advocates for girls to be able to wear shorts and pants at school, and which is apparently still a thing. Not everybody's on board with that yet. They are working with VU looking at sporting uniforms for girls and how they can present barriers too. So we'll put a link to the survey. It is Victorian based, um, but they're looking for girls from the age of 12 to 18 who are or are not involved in sport to participate in this. They want to gather research and data to be able to support the claim that how important uh, design and practicalities of uniform is in creating barriers. 
Nice one, Nicole. Thank you for bringing that to the table. We will tweet and post all those links and thank you very much to Simone who is probably heading that up who is such a great supporter of the Outer Sanctum. Now we've been getting some feedback people love the fifth quarter. I mean mathematically it doesn't work out right (laughs) (laughs) It's been an ongoing saga the old song for the fifth quarter we got a little something for you So is a sucker on the couch with so much downtime. I'm flicking Netflix, looking for my new fix, but everything is old to me. Boss man Skill McLaughlin, he's brought footy back to our lives. Our weekends are styled, the footy is wild, but we need more company. Also, oh, let us hook you up. Let us break it down Oh, books, pods, films, they all abound All our tips are gonna be around When the fifth quarter's a memory Yeah, so let us hook you up Let us break it down Oh, books, pods, films, they all abound All our tips are gonna be around When the fifth quarter's a memory Friend of the show. So the fifth quarter, she is back with a vengeance. Maybe she never went anywhere. Maybe she never will. Maybe she'll always stay with us. But we're coming to you, Dr. Kate Sear, for your culture tips. Oh, well, this is a real change of pace for me and Moss, (laughs) I tell you. I want to talk about Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle is a legendary American comedian. Some people regard him as one of the greatest comedians of all time. And about 15 years ago, he essentially quit at the height of his fame and became pretty much a recluse, only to re-emerge a couple of years ago with a series of um, online streamed specials. And he's a really gifted storyteller. Uh, his comedy has long examined racial stereotyping, racism, police brutality and slavery. And he himself is actually a descendant of slaves. Now, his comeback in recent years has been to mixed reviews. And I want to acknowledge in particular that his treatment of trans and gender diverse people has been pretty disappointing and upsetting and offensive to many. So his comedy is not perfect and I acknowledge that absolutely. In any event, last week quite unexpectedly he released publicly for free a half hour piece called 846 and it was released on YouTube with an accompanying note that said from Dave. Normally I wouldn't show you something so unrefined. I hope you understand. Now it's the first public performance I believe in the in the pandemic and it's recorded in front of a socially distanced audience who are wearing masks and he begins with an anecdote which is about his own experience of living through an earthquake in 1993 and you might wonder where it's going. And from there we discover the meaning behind the title of the show. This shit was terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. A lot of things went through my mind. I was like, not naked, but you know what I mean? Just walk, just chilling in my boxes. Put my clothes on. I found a, my weed and some uh, a pipe and some and a lighter and, and some money and my keys, all these things. And while the earthquake is happening, while I'm experiencing what an earthquake is the first time, and I was certain that I might very possibly die. As a matter of fact, I remember... I made a point not to scream. Just in case I lived, 
I wouldn't have to remember myself being vocally terrified, but I forgave myself for being terrified. That earthquake couldn't have been more than 35 seconds. This man kneeled on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Can you imagine that? This kid thought he was going to die. He knew he was going to die. He called for his mother. He called for his dead mother. Oh, God. I can't, I can't call it comedy because it's not. Although it is funny at times, it's something that's more, it's more like a sermon on race in America. And I have to say, like, I, can't, I almost can't even talk about it without wanting to burst into tears because it totally floored me, totally floored me. Unlike anything else, I must say, that I've encountered since the death of George Floyd. Now, I want to say it's not perfect. There are some omissions and some inclusions regarding women that have been the subject of much debate in the days since, and I acknowledge those too. But there's a reason why this has been out for about four days or five days and 20-something million people have already watched it. I was wowed by it, and it's full of really thought-provoking reflections on celebrity, but also on sport, indifference and suffering, and it's just so powerful. And, I, God, I beg everybody to watch it. It's amazing. I think there's a theme with all of our fifth quarters today and I think it's because of what we've been consuming is all being influenced by what's been happening in the States and by the death of George Floyd. Absolutely and I think it's actually really pertinent to just reflect on the fact that so much of what we're talking about in this fifth quarter is stuff that's come kind of either virally or via platforms that have a lot more equality about them in terms of YouTube or podcasts or just random recordings. That is an interesting thing when we've been talking about closed doors. I want to talk about a podcast um, by Brene Brown, which was launched during lockdown. It's called Unlocking Us. And in her words, she wants this podcast to be real, unpolished, honest, and reflect both the magic and the messiness of what it means to be human. And so she's been talking a lot about lockdown and COVID and catching up with people that she has relationships with. But the last few episodes, she's focused on Black Lives Matter and the broader issues of um, systemic racism. The last episode I listened to was one with an interview with Austin Channing Brown, who is a media producer and activist and the best-selling author of I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. This episode is just compelling listening. They have a relationship, they're friends, and that permeates the conversation. But it is not an easy conversation. They talk about Channing Brown's anti-racism work. It is such a great discussion about defensiveness on the theme of white supremacy and niceness and the issue of proximity, which is kind of, you know, that whole thing of I can't be racist, I went to school with an Aboriginal person. There's also a reminder in here about the fact that exhaustion and wearing down is actually they're part of the tools of oppression. I really thought about that while I was watching people push back in some of the AFL social media about taking a knee. That's what people are trying to do. They're trying to wear you down. They're trying to distract you. I could have picked so many clips from this, but I'm just going to, I want to play you this one thing that Austin had to say about her experience of living in a world made for whiteness. My experience is that white folks want just a pinch of blackness, just a splash, a smattering, a little toss of confetti, of blackness in order to affirm itself, in order to affirm its own goodness, in order to affirm its rightness, in order to get rid of any feelings of guilt, in order to keep itself comfortable. 
Austin has this book I will be reading. She also does a series on, which is available on the internet called The Next Question, which I think is worth digging into. You could also go back and listen to the previous episode of Unlocking Us, where Brene Brown spoke to Professor Ibran Kendi on how to be anti-racist. Love it. Thanks, Lou. I did enjoy it myself. Nicole? On the same theme, a lot of you would have seen a clip of activist Kimberly Jones speaking straight to camera. One of the clips was used on Trevor Noah's show, but it, there were several of them that went viral. She does this incredible performance. It's it's straight to camera where she breaks down the notion of generational trauma, generational disadvantage, using Monopoly as a, a parallel. It's a really extraordinary performance. It's so articulate and thoughtful. And I know that there are people who have changed their minds about how they view the Black Lives issue in America as a result of watching that. We actually have a little clip here. You broke the contract when you killed us in the streets and didn't give a fuck. You broke the contract when for 400 years we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contract when we built our wealth again on our own by our bootstraps in Tulsa and you dropped bombs on us. When we built it in Rosewood and you came in and you slaughtered us. As far as I'm concerned they could burn this bitch to the ground and it still wouldn't be enough. And they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. Her rage is magnificent. It is so powerful and so heartfelt and, and authentic and it's really hard to watch. If I you didn't love her enough already, she's actually a young adult author, which, you know, adds extra points in my book. And she wrote her most recent book that came out is called I'm Not Dying With You Tonight that she co-authored with Gilly Siegel. Extraordinarily, it's about a young black girl and a young white girl who are not friends at all and have, you know, very big assumptions and presumptions about each other and have judged each other a particular way. But they're thrown together. They're at a football match. um, A fight breaks out. It turns into a racial riot, basically, and then it spills out into the streets. And this this is not a wealthy part of town. And the two of them basically have to depend on each other to find their way to safety. And it really is a, an extraordinary, like it's a page turner. It's a gripping read, but so prescient and so relevant. Um, so I highly recommend it. It's called I'm Not Dying With You Tonight by Gilly Siegel and Kimberly Jones. And please seek out that full clip. It's it's well worth it. And if you've got doubters in your life, share it with them. Great recommendation, Nick. I also have a recommendation on a very similar theme. Wesley Morris is a culture writer at the New York Times. He's one half of a podcast that I live by called Still Processing. I urge you to listen to it. I have urged you to listen to it before, but I hope you do. This week, he features on the daily podcast in an episode called The Song That Found Me. He describes how as an African-American man living in New York in the middle of a pandemic during the recent protests, he was stopped in his tracks as he was listening to Patti LaBelle sing a song he's heard her sing thousands and thousands and thousands of times. The song was If You Don't Know Me By Now. He says, I heard her thinking through an ultimatum now being laid down in the streets of this country. Here's a clip. I just wept. It is a rock through a window. It is, it is the burning down of a house. It's an anger that I feel that I couldn't express the way she expresses it. And my brain went right to that man's knee on George Floyd's neck. 
Wesley is so moving as a storyteller and he brings culture into his everyday life to make the stories that matter to him come to life and he does that for me too and I would urge you to listen to it. All of the links for all of these things will be put on our show notes and one thing that before we go I'd just like to say that in that podcast that Lucy was talking about with Austin Channing Brown and Brene Brown one thing Austin says is make sure you're doing the work when your black friends aren't around. Our black and brown friends are exhausted and we don't want them to have to do the heavy lifting so let's do the heavy lifting for them when they're around and when they're not around and that's how you be an ally. Um, I'd really like today if we can to go out with Miss Patty LaBelle because if you don't know us by now you really should. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. There's only one thing left to say and that is go, go footy. Hit it Tess. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.